This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm Jillian King-Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and the director of Northern Illinois University's STEM Read. This episode is called Springboards for Wonder. My guests are John Green and Melanie Koss. John Green has chronicled love, loss, and mental illness in his award-winning young adult novels like The Fault in Our Stars, Looking for Alaska, and Turtles All the Way Down. The first book I read by John Green was Paper Towns. I loved the snappy dialogue, and I loved how it contained big ideas of recognizing wonder in the world, esoteric information about map-making, and quirky details about a family who owned the world's largest collection of black Santa figurines. John Green has always been one of those creators who can pull a lot of different strings together to weave a great story. He does it in his novels, in his YouTube series like Mental Floss, Crash Course, and the Vlogbrothers videos he exchanges with his brother Hank Green. His latest book is The Anthropocene Reviewed, an essay collection rating various fascinating aspects of life itself. We're going to hear about the book, his writing process, and learn why he decided to take a break from fiction. With me on the interview is Melanie Koss. Melanie is a frequent contributor to the podcast and an associate professor of literacy education at Northern Illinois University's College of Education. After our interview with John Green, Melanie and I will share some ideas for using the book as your own springboard for wonder. Here's our interview with John Green. So could you tell us a little bit about your latest book? Yeah, my new book is called The Anthropocene Reviewed. It's a book of essays that take the form of like extremely in-depth Yelp reviews, only instead of reviewing a restaurant or a barbershop, I review Diet Dr. Pepper and this particular bacteria called Staphylococcus aureus and lots of other stuff with an eye toward the places where the big forces of history and science and technology meet my little life. (laughs) Excellent. Well, it's an awesome book and it does seem like a departure from your other books. But if you look at the collection of your work with your YouTube channels and your blog and your essays like that, it does seem like a natural progression. So why did you decide to write the essays? When I was writing fiction, you're always writing in code. And that's part of what's fun about writing fiction is you're imagining what it's like to be someone else. And to the extent that you're inside of the story, you're only there in code. And and sometimes readers think they know the code, but you kind of always know that they don't. (laughs) And that's part of the pleasure of it for me is escaping myself, you know, trying to imagine what it's like to be someone else. But I think especially after my, my last book, Turtles All the Way Down, came out, I realized that I didn't really want to write in code anymore. I wanted to try to write as myself. I wanted to try to reckon earnestly. I mean, I hope the book is very funny, but like it's also, in the end, an earnest book. And I wanted to try to reckon with how I see the world. And I honestly, like I was in a time in my life when I needed to find hope that could withstand the realities of injustice and suffering. And I needed that and not in like a philosophical way. I needed it in a very real, concrete way. And so this book was really me trying to write my way toward that. So how was that process different from you then, the writing process itself? How did you approach it? 
I tried to look for things that were interesting to me that I wasn't paying attention to, things that were shaping my life in a big way that I just didn't pay much attention to, that had become kind of a background hum in my life, whether that's a force like air conditioning, you know, which has completely reshaped the architecture that surrounds me and, and reshaped where humans live and, and all kinds of other things, or, uh, you know, a force like the internet, something that has changed my life dramatically, but I rarely think about. When I first started working on this book, I was thinking very much about the work of my friend, Amy Krauss Rosenthal, who had died not long before I started the book. And one of the things that Amy wrote that really had a big effect on me when I was starting to write this was to pay attention to what you pay attention to. And I'd started to feel like I wasn't really paying attention to what I was paying attention to. And I felt like Amy was calling me to, to try to do a better job of that. I love that idea of paying attention to what you're paying attention to. And I think it's interesting that, you know, in these essays, you can cover everything like in the Halley's Comet essay, you're covering everything from what the comet is actually made of to the history of the comet to then the history of science because of the comet. And then your personal history of remembering when you saw this comet with your dad. So how do you determine the scope of these essays and when, when do you have to stop yourself and, and kind of hone it in? Yeah, there's definitely a long process of revision and deletion. Like just because I find something interesting about Edmund Haley doesn't mean it's important to the essay, you know, and, and that's, that's a huge part of the process of writing them. I wanted to write that essay in particular because the scientific revolution, it's a hugely important force in contemporary human life, maybe the most important force. And we tend to think of it in terms of the work of individuals. We tend to think about Newton and the apple. We tend to think about Halley and the comet. We tend to think about Hooke and the microscope or whatever. And what was really happening is that humans were getting much better at, at least in elite communities, at sharing knowledge and at building knowledge and had developed a new system for testing the knowledge that they had built. And that's really interesting to me. I wanted to try to turn the attention away from Haley as an individual, even though he had an incredible life and was like, you know, like a Jules Verne character and pay attention to the growth of the Royal Society. Why is it that all of these major discoveries were being made around the same time in around the same place? And the answer can't be that, that the individuals of that moment were uniquely intelligent. The answer has to be that there were big human collaborations that were paying off in interesting ways. And so that was the beginning of that essay for me. But then I also had to think about, well, how has that shaped my life? You know, like how has that shaped my particular experience of the world? And on the day that I saw Haley's Comet, I had a hugely important collaboration with my father in my life where we built a bench together, which was not a complicated set of carpentry or anything, but it was the first time I'd ever made anything with my dad. And it was the first time I ever felt like, not quite like his peer, obviously, because I was nine years old, but like I was being taken seriously and like I had an important part to play in my family's life. And so that was a really important moment for me. And it, it felt to me like it had a nice resonance with with the story of Haley's Comet being discovered. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great essay. Melanie and I have been talking about your audience. I think Melanie has a question for you about that. 
So you've been writing for quite some time and the people who really your first main audience were teenagers who are now adults. Mm -hmm. And I know that obviously your books still get young readers, but how much of the idea of as the people you're writing for are getting older, does that impact how you're writing the stories or the stories that you want to tell? I feel like I should answer that question by saying that like I spend all this time thinking about audience and like that's the proper thing to do, but I really don't, to be honest. I mean, when I write a novel, I'm never writing it for myself or about myself. This was probably the first time that in a formal long-term way, I was trying to write for myself on some level. And, you know, like I'm a middle-aged adult. And so I was, I was conscious of, of the fact that, you know, the audience for the book would likely be on average older than the audience for say, looking for Alaska was. But I don't, I don't know. I, I, I really have such a poor idea of, you know, like of who they are. Like I, I can only kind of see them as a collection of individuals, as the people who've written in to share memories with me or whatever. Really what I, what I think about when I think about audience is I think about this incredible mutual generosity that has to happen for a book to work where both the reader and the writer have to allow their fears and experiences and hopes to commingle. And it's this very strange, very deep relationship. Like when I read a book, sometimes the book knows things about me that nobody knows and is able to speak to things that nobody else can speak to because nobody knows them. And, you know, sometimes that happens when I as an adult read a YA book and sometimes uh, it happens when I as an adult read a book for adults. But I, that's the experience that I'm looking for more than, you know, like a clear understanding of audience or, or marketing, which I've never really had. When I was reading your conclusions and reading through your essays, Kurt Vonnie, it comes up quite a bit. So what do you think about his idea of writing to one person? I mean, that's been a very powerful idea in my imagination ever since I was a kid, because I remember reading that he liked to write for one person or thought of himself as writing for one person. And I've, I actually tried to do that when I was writing my first novel. I actually began the first draft of it by writing Dear somebody comma like I was really trying to do that Vonnegut idea of writing for one person it just never worked for me <laughs> like I, I think it's really cool and I want it to be true um but yeah it never really worked for me like I I don't I, I wish I knew who I was writing for but I'm I guess I'm writing for that person who's willing to commingle their fears and expectations and hopes and experiences with mine I think one of the powerful things, at least from my perspective about your books is that they can reach such a vast a variety of people and such a wide audience. And I always tell my students, once you as an author send your book into the world, your readers can interpret it however they want. It's not yeah. yours anymore, it's ours. Right. And so I really appreciate that you have enough depth in the work that you write, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, to challenge individual readers to take what they need and find what they need from your work. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, that I, I feel so strongly about that, that books belong to their readers that, you know, this was this was mine. You know, the Anthropocene Reviewed was mine for years. And I loved having it as mine. And I loved working on it. And it was the most fun I've had writing in, in a long, long time. But it's not mine anymore. Like when this finished copy of the book arrived like a week ago, I looked at it and 
I thought, okay, you know, now it's theirs and hopefully it will be helpful to people. Hopefully it will have, you know, it can have a place in people's lives, but it's not, not really my story anymore. And there's something tough about that. There's a feeling of loss in that, but there's also something so lovely about it that it's going to go on and have lives that I could never imagine for it, that it's going to go to places that I've never been, that it will be read by people that I'll never know. That's really lovely too. So it's a, a complicated moment, but I'm mostly really, really grateful that it's going to be out there soon. I've been listening to your podcast since it started, and I, I know you have that one episode where you did 17 reviewers at one yeah. time, and something that was said in there struck me because it's, it's happened to me too, is sometimes I listened to one of your podcasts or I read something at the right time, and it just hit me in that moment and just caused me to cry and really think deeply about a moment. So thank you for that. But I also love one of the things I love about the podcast and also in reading this book is I feel like in life through all of your endeavors and in the Anthropocene Reviewed you cultivate curiosity and you take risks to explore the things that you're interested in you let your mind go and I like to think of books in many ways as like springboards to wonder and I see your book and podcast as perfect connectors. So what role do you think that books can play in cultivating curiosity? And how do you hope this book will help people be inspired to follow their own curiosity? Springboards for wonder is such a good phrase that I'm just going to steal it and use it all the time. So I think <laughs> that books should be springboards for wonder. I really, I think that's perfect. When I read a book I love, it's a way into both myself, like both places within myself that maybe I didn't have language for, or I didn't, I, I wasn't able to articulate until I encountered um, language for it. But it's also a pathway into worlds outside of myself, into like better understanding the universe and my place in it, but also into better understanding other people's lives, being able to empathize with them more deeply. And I think both those things that books do are, are at least for me so, so critical. Like it is so important for me to be able to understand the, you know, strange abstract depths within, but it's also really important to me to be able to listen to other people better, to listen more carefully and to be able to really believe people about their experiences. I think that's such a hard thing off. And I write about that in the essay about viral meningitis that like one of the problems with intense physical pain is its unshareability. It's so difficult, you know, when, when you are in pain, it is the absolute and only reality. And when you hear of other people's pain, it's very difficult to imagine in any kind of visceral way. And so anything that can break down those barriers between us and, and help us to empathize, I think is super important. And for me, books are a really critical part of that. Well, I know we need to be mindful of your time. So no, I could, I, this is a bummer. I could do this all day. <laughs> well, another time when you've got more time, we'll just have you back. So thank you so much for uh, sharing these essays with the world and for sharing your time with us today. Yeah, it's great to talk with y'all and I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And Melanie, great to see you. You too. You just heard our interview with John Green, author of young adult books like The Fault in Our Stars, Looking for Alaska, and Turtles All the Way Down. His latest book is the essay collection The Anthropocene Reviewed.
If you like mind-blowing connections between science and fiction, check out the Future Telling series. These web shows are a collaboration between STEM Read and Northern Illinois University Libraries. Go to go.niu.edu slash futuretelling to find our past episodes with authors like Mary Robinette Kowal, Maurice Broadus, and Daniel Krauss, and experts from NIU Fermilab and Argonne National Lab. And check out our upcoming programs with Science Riot in June, author Benjamin Percy in August, and author Grady Hendricks in October. Go.niu.edu slash futuretelling. Now here's my chat with Melanie Koss, which includes reviews and recommendations related to The Anthropocene Reviewed. John Green is always a pleasure to talk to. Yeah, as we mentioned before, this is kind of a new direction for John Green. His previous books are novels. And I love what he's doing here in making connections. And one of the things that we decided to call it was a memoir through essays. I think that John Green has been doing a lot of nonfiction work and a lot of memoir work throughout all of his different endeavors on YouTube and Mental Floss and Crash Course. He's got a lot of nonfiction background and it's just, this is a different medium for him. And I like the podcast book connection But the thing that I think his strength is, is narrative nonfiction. Yeah, absolutely. So how would you use this with your students, Melanie? One of the things John Green does so well is to tie things like Haley's comment to an experience he had with his father. It takes something in science, but connects it to the personal. So I think I might use it in my classrooms as this idea of cultivating curiosity. I would love to inspire my students to find something in their worlds that they're interested in, something that they're curious about. They want to go down the rabbit hole. I know that's your word, Jillian, is going down the rabbit hole and exploring and researching something, but also finding a way to connect it to their own personal lives. So I think this would be an interesting mentor text, both for cultivating curiosity and for thinking about memoir and how their own lives can connect to the wider world. I love that idea of making connections. And I think you learn so much more thoroughly and effectively when you find a part of yourself in the thing that you're researching or the thing that you're reading. So with writing, you're right. I I love that idea of the research rabbit hole. That's something that we do in our creative writing camps over the summer. I teach a creative writing camp called Science Plus Fiction. And in that, I really encourage the students to just start Googling things and to see what resonates with them and then follow it down the rabbit hole. And I give an example of a project that I was working on and I start out researching freshwater jellyfish and it goes on and on and on down the rabbit hole. And you know, you've gone too far when you start Googling pictures of yourself with other people. Um, (laughs) It's like, oh, look how cute I look in that picture. And that's when you're like, wait, I'm off topic. Let's see what I Googled. Let's look through my history and see those things that I'm interested in and things that I might want to pursue for my story. I think it also goes back to that idea, pay attention to what you pay attention to. Using that research rabbit hole idea or even an idea list of of all the things that you might want to connect and all the things that you're interested in to start out your story. I think that can be a really great way to, to begin. Uh, Yes, I think the pay attention to what you pay attention to was a line that really resonated for me from the introduction. And I have heard Amy Cross Rosenthal 
had talked about that before too. And it's always stuck with me because that's a very conscious act of paying attention to what you pay attention to and not letting the world just slip on by. I love that idea. And it's also learning what you don't know. So following that and expanding your own horizons as you follow your curiosity. That's the beauty of these independent essays, these independent memoirs is taking this idea of a snippet of your life, a special memory, a favorite soft drink, and taking it, thinking about the connection, and then what is its history? Where does it belong in the world? So it's this this connection of, I know this, and this is relevant and important to me, but how is it relevant? Where does it fit into the wider world? What can I learn about it? Another idea that I was thinking about as we talked about this was, was the idea of choice and voice. If people are connected to what they're doing in some way, if they have a choice in what they're researching or what they're writing about, then they're going to be that much more invested. I always say that about reading too. People are always very concerned about finding the right book at their child's reading level. And I always think of the idea of finding the right book for the right reader at the right time, because it's really important to find a book that a reader is interested in. And I promise you that if you find a struggling reader and you find a book on a topic they're interested in, they will find a way to read it. If you have a child that's very excited about Minecraft, but they are struggling to read texts that are technically at their reading or their developmental level, but they need to find out how to go do something special in Minecraft and they find a manual or a book, I guarantee you they will read it. Right build a triple bunk bed. (laughs) Yeah. And my daughter is learning to read and learning Minecraft at the book fair. She went right to that Minecraft book and she will perhaps code or write about Minecraft too, using that as a springboard. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you bring up, you know, books that are appropriate for readers at certain levels. This is a book that is written for adults. It is a bit of a transition from his YA books, but I would argue that these essays have a lot of appeal for a wide variety of age ranges. And I know I was listening to the podcast when I was in the car and I didn't know that my daughter was listening to it until she said, can you turn it up? Can we listen to another one? So we just started listening to it together. So she's eight (laughs) and, you know, some of them are really interesting to her. Some of them are less so, but they always bring up great questions and discussions that we can have. And my nieces are 15, 13 and 11. And when I was chatting with them the other day about the podcast and the book, they were familiar with the podcast and they'd listened to it too. So I definitely think that there is a wide variety of audience and age level, and it's very accessible. One of the most surprising things about this past year and being quarantined and being limited in what we could do outside of our house was the way that people stepped up and created all of these ways that we could find culture and history and entertainment and all of these different topics that we could go down the rabbit hole with. Uh, If people have the ability, they should try to take advantage of this amazing amount of information that is online right now. So, you know, things like, as we've said, Mental Floss and Crash Course from John Green and uh, Hank Green and John Green's Exchanges. I know I love SciShow as well. But there's also things like the Science and Entertainment Exchange. They do free talks about science and fiction that are amazing with 
insiders from Hollywood and in the scientific community. I've also enjoyed Profs and Pints. Science Riot is a group that we're working with now that they teach stand-up comedy to scientists and they have these awesome virtual shows. So there's just so many things out there that it's <laughs> that Bing on my phone <laughs> was for a reminder for an event that I have starting in two hours. I'm attending a virtual conversation with Andy Weir and Hank Green. And I can do it all from the privacy of my own home, from the privacy of my own couch. Yeah, I will say that one of the things that I've really enjoyed about quarantine, if you can say that you've enjoyed something about it, is I've had the opportunity to go to events that I would never otherwise have been able to go to, especially author events. Publishers and libraries and bookstores have been having so many amazing author events for debut novels. I got to go to an event at NASA with NASA astronauts and children's authors writing about space travel. On my own, I could never have gone to an event that's at NASA, but it's just free to me online. But Jillian, I say this all the time, but I can have event adventures right from my very own house because that's what I love about reading so much is that a book can help me escape to go to another world, to go to another place, to learn something different. Just like the line that John Green said he was going to steal. I always tell my students, and I really do believe that books are springboards of wonder. Books are springboards into exploring all the different things that our world has to offer. And they're a great springboard to have those conversations with others around you. So all of this talk about wonder, it reminded me of the line in Brian Selznick's book, Wonderstruck. Wonderstruck. Yes. We are all cabinets of wonder. There's so much inside us and so much wonder that we can hold and so much wonder that we can share with other people. And what's beautiful about that book too, is it's an added layer of illustration as well as words. So it's really accessible for multiple different reasons. So it's a cabinet of wonder, both by what we see and by what we read. I can tell you, Melanie, that I have enjoyed sharing this interview with you and talking about it with you. You're my springboard for wonder. I always enjoy talking with you, Jillian, because you're my springboard for wonder too. <laughs> well, I'd have to say that I give our review of uh, our interview with John Green four and a half stars. Four and a half stars. High five to that. All right. Thank you, Melanie. Thanks to my guests, John Green and Melanie Koss. You can learn more about our guests and their work in the show notes at WNIJ.org or on stemread.com. If you want to learn more about my Science Plus Fiction summer camp for teens or any of the other cool virtual summer camps we have at NIU this summer, go to niu.edu slash niusteam. This is the STEM Read Podcast. The STEM Read Podcast is produced in association with WNIJ. Support for the STEM Read Podcast comes from NIU STEAM and Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. Thanks for listening. <laughs>